Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, you created and made all things by your eternal power, wisdom, and goodness, that all creation may recognize and revel in your manifest glory. You not only created all things in the past, but you continue to work and sustain and maintain all of your creation every moment of every day for your glory. We confess our sin this morning. Lord, we acknowledge that it is our sin that causes our work, our callings, our vocations to be such a struggle. These things are hard. Our work and callings often bring more frustration and sorrow than joy and good. Holy Spirit, fix our eyes this morning on Jesus, that we may look to him and desire his kingdom. For only in Christ and only for Christ can we sustain our hearts, can we, can we continue in this world that's so filled with turmoil and trouble. For you, O Lord Jesus Christ, you are the one who upholds the universe by the word of your power. And only through faith in you can we know the joy and the hope that your kingdom and your kingdom coming will bring. We ask these things in your son's blessed name. Amen. Amen. Well, when we look through uh, history of cultures past, we find that the majority of cultures throughout human history has considered work to be a bad thing. That work, in fact, is a necessary evil that must be avoided at all costs. The Greeks, for example, in their culture, considered work to be a curse. And especially manual labor was considered to be a demeaning task and despised by everybody in their culture. Every effort was made to live comfortably as possible without having to work, shifting the responsibilities that was necessary for life onto those who had no other way to live. Now that sounds very familiar, maybe, to us today. Today we notice and understand that not much has changed in our culture. We are much like the Greeks in this regard. The labor shortage is noticed not only by the employer, but also by those of us who go to our favorite restaurant in the middle of the day and realize that the lobby's closed because they don't have enough workers. I saw one fast food restaurant that had a sign out front, and on the sign it said, now hiring people who will show up for work. So I guess that gets right to the point, right? We need somebody actually to show up for work. This hatred for work manifests itself in all kinds of ways. But let me get on my soapbox for at least a couple of sentences. It manifests itself in this way in that we have a pandemic among our men in our day that over 70% of our male teenagers play video games more than four hours a day. 45% of adult men play video games more than, 45, or more, more than four to five hours a day. That's a travesty. Um, We were not made, men, by God to play. We were made to work and to defend our homes. And you're being foolish when you do that. All right, so there's there's my soapbox. We can talk about that later. Young ladies, if you have a man who's always playing video games and you're considering to marry him, please ask him to talk to me. I'll be glad to 
encourage him in the, towards faithfulness. The other side of this is uh, the other side of this is that there are and there have been some cultures throughout human history that have reveled in or idolized work. We know people like that today as, let's say, workaholics. They work all the time. They're devoting themselves to the next deal, the next, the next project, the next promotion. Um, some live for that next paycheck. During the time of the Renaissance, people worked and built and created. And when they did and they were espoused or lifted up by the culture around them, they were actually deified in their culture if they created something amazing or astounding. The creatives, the builders, the inventors were praised. They were treated like celebrities when they created something for their culture and everybody wanted to be like them. So humanity aspired, their, so, so humanity or their culture aspired to build the most amazing structure, the most, the most interesting device that would change the, 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 the face of the world so that these individuals could be glorified. And everybody was looking for their own glory. Now we see that even today, that we not only have in our culture, in our today, a lack of work, a desire to see work as something that's bad and awful. We need to avoid it at all costs. But we also see the other ditch, the other, the other hindrance, the other uh, malady, if you will. And that is that we so make work ultimate that we cannot understand ourselves. We can't even define who we are apart from our job, our work, and what we do. So we see the contrast of these two things. This morning, we will turn our attention again to the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're going to go with Kohelet, who is the title. This is the, the, the man's name, the, the title is given, the Hebrew title, given to the one who's called the preacher in chapter 1, verse 1 of, of Ecclesiastes. Likely Solomon, the king of da, uh, son of David. And he's, he's inviting us to press into this question. Is all of life vanity? And is there anything in life that can push back the meaninglessness, the, the hopelessness that's in life? Chapter 1, verse 2 says, Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. That's, the, that's Kohelet's claim. All is vanity, no matter where you look in life. And then he asks us, he invites us to, to come and join him to test the different things that people have tried to test in order to see if, if these things can push back or move away or, or overcome this vanity that's in our hearts. Wisdom. In chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, we see that Kohelet looked at wisdom and said, Can wisdom push back and eradicate or move some, some this, this, this pressing vanity that's in our lives? And he said in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, that wisdom is, is, le- is left wanting. Wisdom will not push back this vanity. Then he turns to assess and va- the value and worth of pleasure, seeking pleasures and pursuing pleasures in this world. And he found that even there in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, that even those pleasures prove to be hollow, not eradicating or even moving this, this emptiness, this this vanity that's in our hearts and in our lives. So this morning we're going to turn to not wisdom and not pleasure, but this third thing that in our society, in our hearts, in our culture, we find this third thing that many people go after to try to move past this vanity and this emptiness that's in our hearts so often. This third popular way of attempting to move beyond this is our work or our vocations. 
Now, when I speak of work, I don't want to just merely mean that thing that we do when we go and get a paycheck. I'm, I'm talking about all of us here because each and every one of us have a particular, and we're going to, I'm going to describe this even more later in the sermon, but we all have different callings, different vocations. We all have our work. We've been called to particular tasks, each and every one of us. Whether we get a paycheck for it or not, each of us have been given these tasks, these callings, these vocations by God. Hopefully we'll understand these a little better as we move along. And as we consider this test that Kohela is giving to us this morning and bringing us to understand whether this work, our vocations, can push back the meaninglessness or the hopelessness of our hearts in this world, he's asking, is there any way that maybe work, if we really give ourselves to it, can help us in this regard? And so this morning we're going to look at two different sides of work. Two different sides of work, and these are going to be our two points for the sermon this morning. The two different sides of work are this. Point number one, the trouble with our toil. The trouble with our toil. And what we're going to deal with here is those who seek to make our work, our vocations, ultimate in our lives. Our our work is not ultimate, and we see the, 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 the harm of trying to make our work ultimate as we consider point number one. The trouble with our toil. This is verses 18 through 23. Verses 18 through 23. The trouble with our toil. Point number two. Point number two this morning. We're going to consider the good of our toil. The good of our toil. And this is in verses 24 through 26. Verses 24 through 26. And if in point number one we're going to be talking about how work cannot be ultimate. In point number two we're going to be talking about the fact that work is not all bad. Work isn't all bad. And we're really going to be dealing with both of these um, misunderstandings of how work should be understood. Both those who want to make work ultimate, it's everything that I live for, or those who say, you know what, I'm going to do everything I can to avoid work at all costs because it's bad. It's something that's horrible and I despise and I don't want to enter into it. All of us have the tendency to fall into either one of those two traps. So let's look together first at the trouble with our toil, verses 18 through 23. Verses 18 through 23. And I want us to notice that the the trouble with our toil, as we work through this passage together, we're going to be doing two verses at a time. First, notice the trouble that is with our toil. We remember the the similar shocking statement that Kohelet said just in the previous verse, in verse 17. It is very similar to um, what's being said here. He asserted in verse 17, so I hated life. Do you remember that? At the very beginning of verse 17 there last week? So I hated life. And here, just the next verse later, he expresses his same hatred. But here it's for toil. In this difficult and grievous life that Kohelet declares, he says that he has come to the same disdain and hatred, not only for his life, verse 17, but now for his constant hard labor and toiling that he has to do in this life. Listen to how he describes it here um, as he describes this trouble with our toil in verses 18 and 19. Look with me, if you will. Verses 18 and 19. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. We see here the the trouble with toil. 
The trouble with toil is this. For all the effort and diligence and for all the care and painstaking, backbreaking effort that we put into our work, there is no guarantee that there will be a legacy. That the person who comes after us will actually use what we've done in a good way, in a faithful way. That person could be wise. That person can just as likely be foolish. After we're gone, we have no idea who will take up the work that we have left. If we build something, we don't know if they'll use it for good or for harm. Will they, be, will they use it for something that's useful? Or they use it for something that will create havoc? We see that this is the problem that is so pressing for all of us who work and toil in our world. There is little hope that what we have given our lives to and all of our toil will actually become something after us. And our lives are relatively short as well. We know that the older we get, the older I get, the more life seems like a vapor. I think back or I look at pictures from a handful of years ago, and it seems like so far, so far away, and yet, in some ways, it seems like it was just yesterday. Psalm 90 verse 10 says it this way, The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone. And we fly away. This is why the author says, as he reflects on this, it brings him back to this saying again. Notice here, at the end of verse 19, this also is vanity. If you are working with the hope that your legacy will go before you, that people will remember you after you're gone, this is not a hope that we should hang our hearts on. Not only do we find trouble in our toil, but we also find despair in our toil. Look with me at verses 20 and 21. If human endeavor can't promise the ability to be remembered, if human endeavor and all of our work can't be promised to be retained or even passed on to someone else who will use it wisely, then what does this call the author then in Ecclesiastes Kohelet? What does it cause him to do? Notice that it causes his heart to go into the deepest of despair. And notice with me in verses 20 and 21 that he actually allows his heart to go there. He's one of those, like many of us, who begin thinking about these difficult things, these hard things. And instead of preaching the gospel to yourself and, and, sh- and bringing back the, to yourself the, the promises of God, he allows himself to go down that path, that, that dark road of just how despairing it is of all the work he's done. Look what it says here in verses 20 and 21. So I turned about. In other words, he's setting his course to do something. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. And what is he despairing over? Over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by some who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Solomon was likely the wisest man who ever lived on earth. Everything he did was done with with divine wisdom at hand. He was astounding in all the things he did and accomplished. There were those who came and saw him and said, what what was told to me is only half of the grandeur and beauty and wonder of what you've built and what you've done. This one Solomon, he says, I've lived my life toiling, building, creating, establishing kingdoms with incredible wisdom, amazing knowledge, skill that has been honed that nobody else has. And then he lays in his bed the last days of his life And before he closes his eyes, he asks, what have I done? What have I done? 
You see, this would cause despair. We can understand how it works. Ending a long day, exhausted over everything that God's called you to do today, whether it be caring for your children or taking classes at school, at college or, or school or, or going to the workplace and sitting behind a desk or, or, or driving a truck. All these things are happening. You, you finish this long day of labor. You come home and you reflect for a while that you were one who came at your job today. You did it well. You were able to wisely, and because of your experience and your, your skill, you were able to do this job in a way that was unlike any other that can do it. You've been doing this for a while, and you're able to, to accomplish great things by, 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 your, by your experience, your knowledge, and your ability. And then it dawns on you. If I have a heart attack tonight, tomorrow somebody else will come into my office, put everything in a box, and start doing what I've done for all these years. If I can't show back up tomorrow, somebody else will do it. What have I done? How have I contributed? Somebody with less wisdom, less knowledge, less skill is going to replace me. I can't help but to think of someone that I think will be remembered for many years, and that is a man by the name of Steve Jobs. He died from cancer in the fall of 2011. One of the most memorable pictures of him that you can find is him showcasing, holding up the amazing, the astounding iPhone 4, right? In 2010, at the Worldwide Developers Conference, he had his traditional long-sleeve black T-shirt on, his blue jeans. Jobs was, a, Jobs was the co-founder, the chairman and CEO of Apple Corporation. His innovation and his designs brought much wisdom, skill, knowledge to our world. What he left behind has influenced many of our lives, even, even now as, you, as, as you're sitting here. And he left everything behind for somebody else to enjoy. He toiled and toiled. You read about his life. He was one who worked very hard. And yet all of that creativity and all of that innovation that he toiled after, all the wisdom and skill all those who looked at him and said, he's unique in his abilities. Are we going to use his stuff wisely or foolishly? This despair that Kohelet, the preacher of Ecclesiastes, is bringing before us is, is when we take work and we make it the ultimate thing. We make what we do and how we perform and how we live, we make those the ultimate thing. That's everything about us is what we do and how we live. When we make work our ultimate thing, it will drive us to this despair. Because despair is not only troubling, but it's also, or excuse me, toil is not only troubling, but it also brings us to despair. If we really think about, if we're living just for this and what our hands can produce, it'll drive us to this despair. We'll set our hearts on it and we'll grieve over it. Thirdly, toil is not only troubling and toil will not only bring us to despair, but toil also is a burden. It's a burden. Look with me at verses 22 and 23. We see here that Kohelet is bringing back this ultimate question that he asks earlier in chapter 1, verse 3. Right as he begins the letter, as he's preaching here, as he's teaching here, 
he brings us to this question in chapter 1, verse 3. But I want you to see the variant of it, the restating of this question here in our verse, chapter 2, verse 22. Listen, what has a man, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? He's asking here, what is it that the man gains? What is it that he gets from all of this toil and all this striving and all of this going hard in our heart with the toil beneath the sun? Verse 23, for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Do you hear the burden? It's the same question as chapter 1, verse 3, where he states, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? He's just restating that question. He's asking this, is there any gain from all of our persistent endeavors, our constant, our constant attempts to achieve something for ourselves? Is there any value in these things? Is there any gain? Is there any benefit? What is a man What is a man left with when he has spent his whole life striving and pursuing for his own kingdom? He says that not just some, but notice, all of his days are full of sorrow. And his work does not bring satisfaction and contentment, but it says here, instead it brings vexation, frustration, irritation. Have you been frustrated this week? At your calling? At your job? Have you grown to become one who is not just frustrated and irritated by the the brokenness of around you, trying to get the kids going in the right direction, or trying to make the the job work, or trying to make the boss go in the right direction, or, or trying to order the things that you're ordering? But have you gone beyond that and stepped back, or maybe on your drive home one afternoon, you let your heart go to despair? I don't know, I don't only. I'm not only irritated and frustrated by this work that the Lord has given to me, that's all around me, but I'm tired of it. I'm grieved over it. It drives me to despair because I can't make it right. It doesn't give me the glory that I want it to give me. I think it may be helpful for us then to understand something very important, and that is, how did this happen? How did this happen? We we will wrongly evaluate the trouble and the despair and the burden of toil if we don't first think about how did this happen. Well, it happened back with our first parents in Adam and Eve. Listen to what happens to them as God issues out punishment for the sin as the consequences of their sin. Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. The Lord is issuing out consequences, and he says this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. So for the woman, he says, your your raising children is going to be hard. And it's never going to work out. And it's always going to be like you're, you're trying to... Trying to herd mice. It's just never going to work out. It's always going to go in different directions. It's going to be difficult from the time you have them... Until your last day. Consequences of sin goes on in chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. The one who's supposed to be helping you in this, the one who's supposed to be supporting and encouraging you in this, you're going to point at him and say, you're the blame. You're the reason why this is happening the way it is. 
But he will not respond rightly. He will instead rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I command you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Because of sin, our vocations, our callings, the thing that God has given to us to work in, they've all been broken from the very basis, the very beginning of how we're to live our lives. We need to acknowledge at this point that work then cannot be fixed by going at it harder. Work can't be fixed either by throwing it out and saying it's just all bad. It can't simply be, it can't be overcome, these maladies, this burden, this despair, can't be overcome because we may be weak and that's what's wrong. We're just, we don't have the abilities and the skills. No, if we had more education, our work would still be just as hard. It's not our weakness that makes work hard. It's not our age. We're just getting older and so we can't do as much. It's not that we don't have enough resources. Here, Kohelet is not speaking of the details of our days. He's not saying that there's particular individual things that, that, that are in our vocations that make them uniquely hard. Um, my, my, my job is uniquely hard because I've got that boss or I've got that spouse or I've got that, that group of children. That's why it's uniquely hard. No, Kohelet says here in verse 23, for all his days, he speaks of this, is vexation and toil and trouble. Speaking instead of the problem as a whole, not just individuals or specifics in life. He's trying to help us see that we are east of Eden, where work was good. Brothers and sisters, east in Eden, work wasn't just good. Work was very good. All that God created was very good. So with the trouble and despair and toil of this life, We need to firmly fix, then, our hearts on something other than work, other than the things that God has given to us. We need to understand that if we continue to make these things ultimate, they're going to be like the burden on Pilgrim's back and Pilgrim's progress. They're going to become bigger and bigger, and they're going to weigh us down as we strap this burden on our our shoulders because this world is broken. It's sinful. It requires sweat for us to get anything out of this, this earth. And so God turns us now and says, is there any good? Is there any good that can come from toil? If toil can't be ultimate, if our work can't be the ultimate thing that we live for, and if we do try to make it ultimate, it will only bring toil and despair and a burden, then then is our work good for anything? If that's the case, then shouldn't we just eradicate it? Shouldn't we just leave it alone, do everything we can to stay away from it, be lazy? Look at me at verse 24. This verse sounds strange in the book of Ecclesiastes. Up to this point, we've heard nothing about enjoyment. I mean, this book has, has done everything it could to show us that there's no joy in anything. And here we are in verse 24, and notice how, how different this verse looks. We've, knew, we've moved now to point number two, the good of our toil, verses 24 and 26. Look with me at verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. 
This eating and drinking is simply an expression of basically living our lives, receiving the fruits from our hands. It's it's the idea of saying, I'm going to work and I'm going to toil, and there's going to be a reward from that. And the reward from that is the ability for me to eat and drink and enjoy what I've gained from that work. But he says here that there's nothing better for us, and that word for better is actually a derivative of the word for tov, which is good, to eat and to drink and to find enjoyment. There's another word that has a derivative or the root is for this word for good. There's no, there's no way we can enjoy our toil except for to look at our, look at our drink and our food and, and say, we need to enjoy this that comes from our toil. How can we do this? How can this happen? We're called to enjoy that which we're eating and drinking. We're to enjoy the things that our toil produces. But how can we do this? Because we just saw that if we try to make our toil, our work ultimate, it turns bad. So I want to lay out three important truths that we see here in verses 24 through 26 that will help us grow to enjoy the toil that God's given to us. So that instead of the trouble and the despair and the burden that it, that it can bring if we try to make it ultimate, verses 18 through 23, instead, I want us to understand how we can turn from it being ultimate, but also refuse to insist that it is a bad thing that we need to reject, but instead that we can find enjoyment in the work and in the toil that God has given to us. Three different truths or principles, if you will, that will help us be able to enjoy our toil. Principle number one is there in verse 24 at the end, and here's the principle. Our work is from God. Our work is from God. Do you see it there? Notice at the end of verse 24, it says, There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Notice at the end. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. This toil that they're in, they're eating and they're drinking. All of these things are from the very hand of God. And he's not talking about just our work, our paycheck. He's not talking about just the thing that we go and do um, between certain hours during the day. Instead here, I want to reaffirm that he's here talking about our vocations, our callings. The Lord is giving us, each one of us, unique callings in our lives. The things that God has given to us in our particular vocations are unique to each and every one of you as individuals. Each and every one of you are a daughter or a son, a sister or a brother. A husband or a wife, a mom or a dad, a co-worker, you're a church member, a neighbor, a friend. And each one of you have different roles in those particular callings. All of those things were given to you by God as a gift. By his very hand, in his wisdom, and in his goodness, the Lord has given you those callings. Though these may be... What we expect, though, the, though these may not be exactly what we expected or planned for our lives, each and every calling that the Lord has given to us, even though many of us would say that some of those callings bring great sorrow and struggle in our lives, great difficulty for us, the parents that you have, God knew he was giving you those parents. Now, you think that's crazy. There's no way God, in his wisdom, would give me those parents, but he did. The people in this church, especially those that drive you crazy, God gave you those people. 
for your good. He knew what he was doing. The spouse that the Lord gave you, he gave to you uniquely because he knew that you needed that spouse. The kids that the Lord's given you wasn't by mistake. He's not going to let you pick and choose which ones you want to keep and which ones you want to give back. The siblings, kids, children here, the siblings that you have, your brothers and sisters, those were given to you by God. And God isn't making any mistakes. The crazy neighbor two doors down that keeps trying to build stuff in his backyard and you think he's like trying to zone in UFOs, that guy God put two doors down from you so that you can love him and serve him well. The Lord isn't making mistakes. He puts us in the vocations and callings that he's given to us so that we can fulfill them and so that we can lean on his strength, his grace, his wisdom, and say, Lord, you're trying to sanctify me. You're not just trying to make me comfortable. You're not just trying to make my life wonderful. You're not, Lord, trying to build my kingdom. You're trying to build your kingdom. And therefore, we're called to be content with the unique life and callings our Lord has given to us. By viewing work and our callings this way, we confirm that when we do work, when we fulfill our callings that God has given to us to do, then we are most reflecting his image and his character. Because God himself was one who worked. God gave us all of our callings, but he also was uniquely called and also worked as our God. The, the first couple of pages of our Bible is so familiar to so many of us. Let me, let me read to you what God gave to Adam and Eve and gave to humanity to do. This was before sin entered into the world. So work isn't a byproduct of sin. The reason work is in the world is because sin has happened and because sin is everywhere, then we have to work. No, not at all. Before sin even entered into the world, work existed. Look at what God gave Adam and Eve to do before sin entered the world. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, listen, God's giving them a task. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In other words, the Lord is calling Adam and Eve to take care of this creation that he's given them. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. This is what the Lord was doing. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So these are the things that God gave Adam and Eve to do. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, listen, God finished his work. God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So the point we need to fix in our hearts right now is that even though work may be very hard and sometimes we don't like it, sometimes it seems to be drawing us into despair or maybe even very troubling in our hearts, it's a burden often, we need to realize that when that is happening in our lives, it's because we're making work, our vocations, our callings, more about us and our kingdom than about God and his kingdom. 
We're to satisfy our soul. We must confirm that work is a good gift from God given to us, and he knows what he's doing. Humanity was given work to do before sin ever entered into the world, and so our work is not inherently sinful. It can be something that glorifies God. This is why, and I want you to reflect on this some, I want you to think about this some. The Lord worked six days, rested on the seventh. This is exactly the pattern that he sets up for us. He says in Exodus chapter 20, the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor. Did you know that the fourth commandment's about six days us working? We're supposed to be working six days? That's what the fourth commandment says? Do all your work, it says. Exodus 20 verse 8. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall, do, you shall not do any work. And so honoring the Lord's day, as we do here, is a declaration that our work is not ultimate, nor is it bad. And that finally and ultimately what God's trying to do in our lives isn't about what we're trying to do, but it's about what God's trying to do through us. And we can rest on the Lord's day because ultimately it's about him doing his work in his kingdom through us, not us trying to build our own kingdom according to our own plans. So resting on the Lord's day and setting aside all of our vocations and saying, I'm going to affirm what God is going to do ultimately and finally is a way we can honor the Lord on his day. So not only is work, principle number one, our work is from God. Principle number two, this is in verse 25. Principle number two, number two our work is from God for our enjoyment. Our work is from God for our enjoyment. God not only wants us to understand that our callings come from his hand, but verse 25 helps us see that he wants us to enjoy the callings that he's given to us. And we can only enjoy our callings as we should whenever we do them as unto the Lord. When we realize that we're doing these things not in our own strength, not in our own ability, not for our own end, but instead as unto the Lord. Notice what it says here. These callings are not only from God, but they're for our enjoyment. Look at verse, verse 24 here. Excuse me, verses, the, the, the end of verse 24, the beginning of verse 25. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. Verse 25. For apart from him, this is God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? How does it say that we are to most fulfill our callings and enjoy them? The only way we can enjoy our callings is to acknowledge that these callings are from the Lord and they're given to us from God's hand. They're from Him. And that apart from Him, notice, apart from Him, who can eat and who can enjoy? No one can is the answer. No one can enjoy your food and your drink, your life, the callings that you've been given, unless the Lord gives you this joy. Apart from him, you will not enjoy him. If it's only about you and your kingdom and your ways, then you'll, 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 you'll dive into despair and trouble and a burden. Apart from the Lord, all our work will only be trouble, despair, and burden from finish to start, from start to finish. Now, we may be saying this like Paul says it. We, we can say it this way. Ephesians chapter 6, which was read this morning by Dale. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, since, uh, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. As you would Christ. 
not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, rendering service with a good will, listen, as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Colossians 2.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Colossians chapter 3, verse 24. We are to work not as if we are working for man or even for ourselves or for our children or for our boss or for our spouse or for those around us, but instead we're to be working for the Lord, honoring Him, seeking His will, seeking His honor. Now let me ask you this, and this can be applied in several different ways, but I want to encourage I want to encourage you in this way. Dad, to the dads that are out there. If you're like me, your life often gets frustrating, irritating, struggle. Nothing's working. Everything's broken. Everything's flying apart. How do I make things right? There's trouble, despair, and burden in my life as I'm trying to be a dad. There's sorrow. Now, I can make my children in my life ultimate. And when I do, I make them everything. That means that their behaving is a reflection of me. Their academic endeavors are a reflection of me. Their being good around all of you is a reflection of me. All these things I'm going to make sure my children do because I need to make sure that my kingdom is shown for all of his glory before all of you because I'm going to make my children ultimate. And everything they do is reflecting on me and my kingdom and my worth and my value. And that will lead to incredible sorrow. Despair. It's a burden that none of us can carry. Now, I've known some parents that live for their children, and that's a sin. I've also known some parents that have said, you know what? I'm done. My children have caused nothing but craziness and havoc and turmoil. They've broken everything in my house. I'm ready for them to get out. There's sorrow and despair. And, and I can, as a dad, then turn and say, not, only, not should, my children shouldn't be ultimate, but then I can turn, I can say, you know what? My children are bad. They're bad because they're making my life not as comfortable as I think it should be. They're bad, and I want nothing to do with them. They're bad, and they just need to get away. They need to get as far away from me as possible because my kingdom is being threatened. Both of those Attempts to either make our children, as a dad, to make my children ultimate or to then turn and say, no, no, my children are bad. They're not supposed to be who God's given to me. Both of those are turning away from this very important truth, and that is that my children are given to me by God. It's the work that the Lord has given to me by his hand, and they're for my good and my joy. They're They're from God, and they're for his glory and my satisfaction. So you see how there's only one way we can do our work. There's only one way we can put our hands to the things that God has given to us. is by first seeing that it is from God, and secondly, it's from God for our enjoyment. We're to be enjoying these things, and we can when we take ourselves out of them. We are to work not as if we are working for man as some earthly reward, but instead for the glory and joy of the Lord. This truth, brothers and sisters, is absolutely necessary 
for us to be clear on, to insist on today. There is nothing better than a good meal with your friends. There's nothing better than a vacation with your family. There's nothing better than a good cup of coffee and a talk with a friend. There's nothing better than a walk with a loved one or a friend on the beach. All of these, all of these not enjoyed as coming from God will become ultimate things and we will demand them in our lives. But when we see that all of these things are a gift from God, then we can drink deeply of them knowing that it is the Lord who's given them to us and we can enjoy them as coming from his hand. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. We are not to be going through life just slogging through, saying everything is hard and a burden. Instead, we're to be looking at the things that the Lord has placed around us and asking the Lord to give us joy in them. When they're not joyful, when they don't bring some satisfaction, then we're forgetting that they're coming from the hand of God and that they're for our joy. When we look to the Lord and we see Him in all these things, we can begin enjoying them again. Psalm 4, verse 6 says this, There are many, there are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have with their grain and wine abounding. It is the Lord that gives us joy in these things. Psalm 104, verse 27. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. And when you open your hand, they are filled with good things. The Lord is the one who opens his hand and fills our hearts with good things. Psalm 145, verse 16. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Has your prayer this week been, Lord, this is hard. This calling that you've given to me is hard. And I'm pretty beat up and I'm weary and I don't want to leave my bedroom. Open your hand that my soul will be satisfied. That I might be able to walk forward satisfied in you, knowing that you've given me this calling for my good, to, to help me lean on you, and to remove sin in my life. 1 Timothy 6.17 As for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. To enjoy. Now, I don't remember the details of this, but I want to tell this story because I, 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 I hope it, it lands with our attempt as parents and our attempt in our own hearts to enjoy the things that God has called us to enjoy. We were, as a family, given the opportunity to go on a cruise several years ago. And so we went and... One of the mornings that we were docking, we were docking at the cruise line's private island for the day. That was pretty, pretty awesome. It's a lot of fun. We get up. The kids are young. We get up and uh, go to breakfast, come back, and we do family worship because that's what you're supposed to do. I, I'm sure everybody on the cruise line, every family was there doing family worship before they left that morning. But um, we did family worship. I don't remember the text that we read, but I remember afterwards, you know, um, I'm sure... We're sitting there in bathing suits and you know, swimmies and ready to go, right? And uh, I remember looking at the kids and saying, listen, we're going to have a ball today. We're going to have a great time. It's going to be fun. We're going to swim, snorkel, ride stuff, have fun, play. But I want you to remember this several times today. As we're out 
doing this today, I want you to remember this several times as we're out doing this today. If we can enjoy God's creation this much, how much more can we enjoy our God? That the Lord is opening his hand and showing us, look how good I am. Look how glorious I am. Look how wonderful I am. Instead of being enthralled with the creation, let's pause and back up and say, God is, God is amazing. God is so good. He's given us such wonderful blessings. He is the God who just is reflecting just slightly through all of these good things that we are so enamored with. And yet we want to fix our eyes on those things and not on the Lord. Teacher heart this thing. In fact, I would encourage you this week, if you pray your prayers before your family or out loud, begin your prayers this way. God, you are good. You are good. I want you to begin your prayers that way because I want you to begin asking the Lord to convince you that he isn't trying to beat you up or harm you. He's got you where you are because he is good and he's trying to shape you into his likeness. And seeing and enjoying God's goodness in all of our vocations is exactly how God's called us to have great joy in him. I want you to believe this, brothers and sisters. I want you to believe Psalm 16, verse 2. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Psalm 16, 2. I want you to believe Psalm 73, verse 25. Whom am I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The third principle. The third principle for us to enjoy our toil. And we'll close. The first principle is that the work is from God. The second principle is that the work is from God and for our enjoyment. The third principle is this. Our work is from God for our enjoyment. And here it is, the third principle. And for his kingdom. And for his kingdom. You've heard this throughout this sermon. You keep hearing the fact that so often we're trying to live for our kingdom and not his kingdom. We need to fix our hearts on this very important truth, this last truth. And it is this, that the Lord is building his kingdom. Our vocations are for that end. Everything that he's placed on earth is for the purpose of his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we pray. That's what we desire. That's what God's people are called to. And so everything we do is for that aim. Will God's kingdom come? Absolutely. And it's not gonna, we're not going to get there in the way we think we should. He's not going to allow us to walk through rose gardens to get there. No, it's going to be a tough road because we're going through this life and the Lord's making us more and more in the likeness of Christ. And so you see this here. These two distinctions, those who want to please God and live for his kingdom, and then those who are sinners who don't desire to live for his kingdom. Verse 26, look with me if you will. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. Notice how the Lord is supplying for those who please him. He's giving them wisdom, not shrewd, clever, cunning like the world has, but wisdom that's from above, wisdom that's humble and fears the Lord, and it's a harvest of righteousness that comes from that. He gives us knowledge, it says. This knowledge is information that's also connected with experience and practical discernment. But notice the third thing that it says that the Lord gives to those who who desire to please the Lord. If you're desiring to please the Lord in all of your vocations, you know what the Lord will give you? He'll not only give you wisdom to do it, He'll not only give you knowledge to be able to do the task that seems impossible for you, but the Lord will give you joy in it. The Lord will give you joy in it. 
Notice what it says. The Lord gives to the one who wants his will by the callings and vocations of his job. The Lord gives that one joy. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells secure. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Do you notice that there's a contrast here? There's the one that pleases God and the one who's the sinner. It's amazing here that it says that the sinner is the one that's constantly, it seems, groping around on earth trying to make things work. It says here he has been given the business of gathering and collecting. He's just wandering around doing all this stuff. And yet it's to no advantage at all. The Lord says, this one isn't going to have any gain or advantage from this. In fact, it's only going to lead to despair and trouble and a burden. And when it's all said and done, what will happen to what he gathers and collects, the sinner? It says it will be given to the one who pleases God. In other words, brothers and sisters, the Lord's kingdom will prevail. We've seen this before, haven't we? What happened to God's people when they left Egypt? Do you remember? When they left Egypt, the most powerful, influential, rich city and and, and, uh, country in the entire world at the time. It says in Exodus chapter 12 verse 35 that when the poor peasant slaves, the Jews, left Egypt, it says the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry for clothing and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Not only did the Lord release his people from slavery, but he gave them gold and silver and jewelry. They plundered the Egyptians. Now what we find out later is that the reason they needed that is to build the tabernacle so they can worship their God. You do know that your stuff, your things, your vocations, your children, your spouse, your house, they're not for your glory. They're for God's glory. They're for God to be worshipped and adored and glorified. Now, when they go into the land of promise, the Lord in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he tells them, you're getting ready to go into the land of Canaan. And over there where all those people are, and you're going to go over there and you're going to take this land. Listen to what the Lord says when he says they're going to take the land. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build. There's going to be cities set up for you when you go into that land that you didn't build. And houses full of all kinds of good things that you did not fill. And cisterns that you did not dig. And vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care. Lest you forget your Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery... It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. By his name you shall swear. You shall not go after the other gods. You see what happens? As soon as they got all of these things that they didn't work for, they began using them for their own ends and means. Could it be that that's our heart as well? We have so many things around us, so many things that the Lord's blessed us with, and we've, we've begun using them as if they're for us and for our own ends, for our own kingdom instead of turning and serving and worshiping the Lord with them. So if you ever get discouraged, and every time you try to do something, it seems to fall apart, and all of those families over there that aren't believers and that aren't here on Sunday morning, they seem to have all kinds of stuff and all kinds of wonderful vacations and all kinds of things and all kinds of things. Know this, that 
that God is going to bless us by his riches. We're called to be faithful. We're not called to be amazing and astonishing in all of our things. Brothers and sisters, we're called to be faithful to the things that God's given us to, to, to do. He's called the single adults in this congregation to love one another, to love the congregation. He's called dads to disciple their families. He's called moms to wipe noses and pick up Cheerios. He's called the children in this congregation to serve their siblings. In other words, we're not to do this amazing, astonishing thing. How is God going to bring about his kingdom here on earth, this amazing, glorious kingdom? He's going to do it by us faithfully and joyfully serving and loving and caring for those that God's put around us. That's how he's going to bring it about. So this morning, some of us need to repent. We need to repent. We need to ask the Lord to grant us repentance because we've either made work our ultimate thing that we're trying to live for concerning our kingdom, or we have turned around and said work is the most horrible thing in the world and we're not going to do any of it. Instead, we're to trust in Christ and trust that through the vocations that God has given to us, we don't have to live in anxiety and stress and frustration and vexation, but instead we can pray and love and serve one another knowing that Christ's kingdom will come, his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So can wisdom push back vanity? According to Ecclesiastes 1, 12 through 18, no. Can the pursuit of pleasures push back vanity? Ecclesiastes 2, verses 1 through 11 says no. Can we throw ourselves into our work in hopes that we can leave a legacy and build a kingdom for our own glory? Will that deliver us from this empty vanity of our hearts? Our passage this morning not only says no, but according to the last sentence in our verse here, notice the, la- the very last sentence in verse 26. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. So how can we live with the assurance that our work is not vanity, vanity, all is vanity? I want to encourage you this afternoon at some point, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Sometime this afternoon, in your afternoon by yourself or maybe with your family, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's the epic chapter on the resurrection of Christ. Near the end of that chapter, it says this, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. What We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. You see what's happening? Paul here is turning these saints to look toward the kingdom to come. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed, for this perishable body must put on imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality, then, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen to the last verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Listen to the last verse. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not 
in vain. Let us pray together.